Welcome to the Arise Podcast with Danielle Castillejo and Maggie Hemphill. Conversations around faith, race, justice, gender, and the church. Hey, thanks, Maggie, for introducing us. And today we have special guest, Pastor Ken Riley, whoop, in the house. He is a father, a husband, a campus lead at New Life Bremerton, a former Navy chaplain. And basically, Ken knows what he's about. Yeah. He, he He's practicing what he preaches, and he's in our community. So it's so good to have you. Oh, thank you. It's certainly an honor and a privilege to be part of this moment. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I think we were talking, like, we can just dive right in. Are you okay with that? Absolutely. Or do you want to say a little bit about your family first? Like, how do you feel? Oh, yeah, I always like to talk about my family. I have a wife, Kimberly. For um, 21 years, so certainly my soulmate, and I have three teenage daughters. One that just turned 18. Bless you. Thank you. <laughs> One will be 16 here in March, and then uh, 15. So it's a lot of moving pieces in our household. And my oldest is getting ready to graduate from high school. Wow. Thinking about what her next step is college-wise. So we're waiting to hear from about seven universities, and so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So. Oh, it's a big time in the Riley house. Big time. Big time. Yeah. You're gonna have two drivers now. Two drivers, yeah. How's only, that? With only one, two more drivers with the same amount of vehicles. So we're trying <laughs> to figure out how to manage that. Yeah. That seems like a Rubik's Cube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. come on. Yeah. Carpooling is encouraged, absolutely. <laughs> we rec- hashtag carpool. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Thanks, there kid. Go. Yeah. Sure. So, Ken, we were talking about a little bit before you came on, like, what did you want to talk about? And you answered. Yeah, I think... One of the things, especially being February and Black History Month and reflecting on my time um, in Senegal, I just came back this uh, past November from a trip with a uh, school we partnered there with at the church, Le Bon Samaritan. It's located in Dakar, Senegal. And one of the things uh, I think is an awesome privilege is we get to visit Gori Island. Gori Island is one of three major hubs in terms of the West African slave trade. Mm. And so to be in that space real time wow. and see kind of the, the journey uh, that those Africans uh, took to America or wherever, you know, it really caused me to reflect on, you know, what's, you know, how do we get some momentum around yeah. race relations? Mm. Um, I think that's a topic that has pretty much been the fabric of our nation and we have a long way to go, but I think there is there has been some progress. And so from my perspective, as I look at kind of that experience and my own experience as an African-American man and the things that I've been through, and looking at Martin Luther King's dream, I'm, um, I'm always asking myself, is the glass half full or is it half empty with regards to race relations? And from my perspective, I think it's half full. Yeah, mm. yeah I was just, I was reflecting on that recently myself, my friend, um, sent me a piece on uh, African liberation theology yeah, yeah. and the connection between black theology and, and then liberation theology and Latinos like kind of mm, sure. kicking some of that around. And so, yeah, I'm, it's amazing. Even that little piece of writing she did helped me feel connected to her. Sure. Like, Oh yeah. yeah, we got connection in this. Yeah. And it's another thing that's also connecting that has kind of shaped my philosophy is partnering with uh, the native Senegalese people. And um, when I would go over there, it's almost like this dichotomy of, okay, I'm African-American, you're African, Mm. we're different. And which, you know, culturally, there are some things that are different, but it was so, so amazing to see how aligned we are. And I kind of had this moment where I felt like I was returning home when I went to Africa, Mm. but still feel like I had to come home back Mm. to the U.S. And I shared that with some of the Africans uh, there and one of them put their arm around me at Gory Island and said, man, isn't it uh, 
good to be reminded that we're brothers. And so I'm like, hmm, there is not really this line uh, that you know, could be separated by the Atlantic Ocean, but there's actually a connection. You can actually feel the souls, in my opinion, of those people that were transitioning uh, from there to uh, wherever they landed. I stood, there's a spot in the museum called the Door of No Return, which is the door uh, that you would stand in. And they said that because once you left that door, you never came home. And they had the, the tour guide was telling us how there were some sharks. Sharks would wait at that door because there would be a lot of slaves who would just jump into the water because they didn't want to want to be want to experience what was lies ahead. And so to be standing there and, st- and feel so connected, I always thought, okay, how do we all walk through this door of no mm. return, not to return to the racial injustices that exist in our society, but make a commitment to work together to provide healing and hope. Has like a moment of silence there. <laughs> sure. I as it you. should be. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, we just got done, you know, Kobe Bryant passed and yeah. Gigi passed. And we've been talking about that. Maggie and I have been talking about that and talking about it with a friend of ours. And just this idea that, that the souls that are lost, that they're living, that they're still crying out. Sure. And that, and then there's an opportunity now to listen to them now. Absolutely. We don't have to be deaf to what they were saying. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And take a call to action. Uh, Cause one of the things that um, I also reflected on is my church experience <laughs> being uh, kind of bred into the African-American church. My mom was a worship leader in the church that I grew up in. And so certainly the African-American church is my it's, it's at the core of who I am, that experience, their commitment to justice. Martin Luther King, when he was interviewed and asked if he was a communist, he said, I'm not a communist, I'm a Baptist preacher. And so <laughs> <laughs> I always stuck with, like, my conviction is biblical. And I think for me, as I look at racial reconciliation and argue that the glass is half full, I have to ask myself, what's my conviction? You know, what's my conviction? And I, too, as King, is my conviction is biblical. Uh, one of the privileges of serving in the uh, military chaplaincy is that you're exposed to pluralistic ministry, which means there's different faith backgrounds, there's different theologies, ideologies, and there is different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And so the Navy chaplaincy, they have this model where you provide for your own, care for all, facilitate for others, and advise the command. So whatever faith background you may have, somebody will come and say, Hey, chaps, they call us chaps. Can we have this space to worship the creator, God, fill in the blank as we see it? And you have to provide that. Mm-hmm. Some struggle with that. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of be really secure in who you are as you, mm-hmm. you have to be clear about that moving forward. But with that, I was able to facilitate as I provided for my own spaces where there were people that didn't look like me. Mm-hmm. And I wrestled with that because in the um, my church context back home, the African-American church, which I dear love, sure, surely a part of, I would always wrestle with, okay, hey, there's one way of expressing my faith, which is so core to who I am. But when I go into the military setting and have to facilitate more of a multicultural, multi-ethnic expression, there's the same spirit would be present and individuals would still see transformation and healing. And so I was going on a hike in Quantico, Virginia. Here's my claim to fame. I was going <laughs> on a hike with the Marine Corps, nine miles one way. And so we get to this hike at the beginning, at the end of the hike, you know, we have some, uh, some a meal that was prepared 
And when I say meal, I mean like a sack lunch where you hurry <laughs> up and eat. You don't have a lot of time. Yeah. These poor Marines, they are, they're actually officer candidates. So they were college students going through this process to see if they wanted to be Marine Corps officers. So it's almost like a boot camp amped up a notch in terms of really rigorously physically and mentally challenging these, these young college students. And so we get up to this hike and I have to preach a, a sermon to these people. Mm. And, you know, they have this paint from the camouflage all running down their face. They're exhausted. And I just preached, um, you know, what I felt God had given me in that moment for that group, all different walks of life, different nationalities, different backgrounds. And we're able to experience something pretty powerful as there was this spirit of unity that existed. And I'll never forget coming down that hike. Um, I heard clearly uh, Matthew, uh, Jesus's command in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. And I'm like, okay. What does that mean? I didn't have a clue what that meant. I was studying at Seattle University, working my Master's of Divinity, trying to kind of unpack my next step. And so um, I just began to talk to some mentors of mine, went to my pastor and said, hey, God's kind of put this in my heart. And he said, hey, you have my blessing to kind of figure out what that means and what that looks like. So I took that and I went to uh, New Life Church and said, hey, this is what I believe God has called Mm -hmm. me to do. How do we create a worship experience that can also represent racial unity mm. and because uh, I my, my a soapbox of mine is if we're looking for racial reconciliation in our community I would argue that one place it should be evident is the church right where we worship one God and so um, long story short I had come to New Life just to learn how to plant I was thinking of something very small kind of had a team that was diverse and um, to represent the community that we are part of and um, long story short here I am now, about six years later, uh, serving in the city of Bremerton, which I think really uh, is, is, is a fertile ground to kind of uh, move forward in this fashion to provide leadership and what that looks like. Yeah, yeah there's so many good pieces in there that I want to pull out yeah. that, um, that it's a commitment to work together. You know, racial reconciliation is a commitment to work together, and, and it requires us uh, it calls us to action. Mm-hmm. You had said something that in your experience with um, being in the Navy chaplain, to facilitate a space for those who don't look like me mm-hmm. because our convictions are biblical. Yeah. And I just love this idea you had said, choosing the third way mm-hmm. to racial reconciliation through the church. Yeah. And I would love to hear your dream for what sure. that looks like in our... Oh, absolutely. I think Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives us the sermon on the mount, and he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mm. So I think the first step uh, that can move us in that vein would be mourning with those who mourn. Yeah, that's Um, good. You know, I was at a talk, and I heard somebody say, you know, this uh, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter movement. Certainly at the heart of it, I get the the end goal is to provide awareness and to to promote justice. But as I begin to think about kind of that... um, that stance or those stances, which could be devices, de- divisive. I'm wondering, are those just opportunities for us to mourn with those who are mourning? Mm-hmm. Meaning, can I mourn with the, the African-American family whose child got shot in the back while running? Yeah. Can I mourn with the police officer who got killed in the line of duty? And I think if we just make a decision to mourn, I think oftentimes for me in my story, I've been always trying to say, okay, I hear something that I don't agree with. And so my stance is to try to defend what I believe and what I uh, stand for, which is certainly appropriate. But I think at the end of the day, perhaps, maybe, 
that person or persons may be asking, can somebody mourn with me? And I think it's through our mourning we can find comfort, and then through that comfort we can move forward as we're working together. I think a second piece would be uh, we need to be passionate peacemakers. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And so, uh, again, Martin Luther King, as radical as he was, and if you really listen to his I Have a Dream speech, he wasn't holding any punches. He was mm-hmm. really speaking to the culture like, hey, what is happening is wrong. But his approach was one of peace through nonviolence. And I think through peacemaking, we can create influence. And influence allows for those relationships to take place. One of the most powerful images that I've seen of Dr. King when he's sitting across the table from President Johnson getting the Civil Rights Act pushed through. And so for us, we had to, in order to work together, we have to have influence. And then to have influence, we have to say, okay, we have to move beyond just being equal. How do we become one? Mm. And that allows all of because we can be equal and I can still have my phobias, my prejudices and whatever things that I think are right. But when I work together as one, I can let those guards down and say, okay, what's the common goal? What's the end game? Mm-hmm. That's unity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of, a lot of thoughts on that. I think I really resonated with what you talked about with like black lives matter, all lives matter, blue lives matter. My, my, my feeling about it has been, there's a fear I think that I encountered even inside of part of myself and I encountered in conversations with other people that if I was to say black lives matter, did that say something about me? Didn't matter. And I, I think see. people sure. wrestle with that. Sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's kind of in your own identity development. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be able to say I matter, but I see that these people matter absolutely. and they matter because they're created in the image of God yeah. and they are a reflection of the image of God. And therefore they own human dignity. Mm-hmm. They're created with a purpose and a mission and a value. And so black lives matter, yeah. like hashtag mm-hmm. sure. mic drop, right? Oh, like yeah, I can say that. And yeah. then I can look at the person and I don't think that has to, th- that's not a threat mm-hmm. to someone else. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's an invitation, like you said. It's Absolutely. an invitation to say, well, why am I afraid? It's an invitation to say, why, why can't I say that? Yeah. I, I doubt it's really about the fact that you, it's about something you're afraid of inside of yourself sure. and something maybe you don't want to lament that's been part of your, for me, being half German and half Mexican, you know, part of the privilege I've grown up in as being a light-skinned Latina woman. I have to own that. Sure. Once I own that, then I can then I can move forward. Absolutely, yeah, and absolutely. And look at how far we've come. You know, I uh, I grew up as a teenager in the Rodney King era, and I can come back for part two of this story. It's a pretty long story, but I'll <laughs> I'll, I'll abbreviate it as fast as possible. No, don't I abbreviate spent, it. Let okay, it go. Let it go. Yeah, we got time. My senior year in high school, I actually spent incarcerated, finding a attempted murder case on the Side Sheriff Police Department. Me and some other individuals. I've, granted, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was in an area where I shouldn't have been, kind of growing up in this sub-gang culture, suburbs of California, Riverside County. I was hanging with these fellas, and there was some gang activity that had happened, and then the police kind of witnessed that, but they changed it to say that the gang activity was targeted towards them. Mm. And so we got charged with some pretty serious charges. Um, <clears throat> I was looking at 30 to life um, me and three other co-defendants. And so my whole senior year in high school, I was in juvenile hall and then turned 18, went to the county jail. And I had this moment where I'm like, hmm, 
I'm probably not going to, because they were saying you need to take a deal. And I'm like, yeah. but I'm innocent. And so I was getting railroaded and told my mom, I'm just going to take a deal. They'll drop it to an assault charge. And you only have to do, I only have to do 30 months and I can get out. I got time served. And she put her hand on the glass in Riverside County Jail, Robert Presley's Detention Center. I'll never forget it. It's giving me chills telling the story. Mm. And she said, do not take a deal. Fight this case. Yeah. So you see me here now. Long story short, we got found not guilty. Uh, praise the Lord for that. My other two defend, co-defendants got found guilty that day, which is a pretty sad day, but they appealed it like about a year later and found out that they had had this uh, witness, uh, a special a person that has special needs. They forced a testimony and that all came out. So they got, they got released as well. But it was in that moment as in that culture of Rodney King and that all that racial stuff happening in Southern California and me being incarcerated what, what was it that I think I needed in that moment, right? And wh what kind of advocacy did I need in that moment? And for me, as I reflect on that and my call in charge now, I needed high relationships with individuals in power to infiltrate the system. Mm -hmm. And that comes by being, like you said, Danielle, being humble enough, being a, you know, getting my own phobias out of the way to say that we can move, move forward. Because I tell you, when I got released one people group that I really had a problem against was anybody in law enforcement. I'm sure, <laughs> as you should have had. <laughs> you mm. think profiling the whole thing. And now, what's so cool, I was standing in downtown Bremerton in my, one of my favorite restaurants, El Bacon, and I'm standing on a corner with another African-American gentleman. And the chief of police in Bremerton walks by, waves, hey, Ken, how you doing? And I say, hey, chief, how's it going? And he and I were kind of joking. The other African-American said, hey, you know, a decade or so ago, we would have been running from the police mm. instead of instead of waving. And so as I think about that and the transformation that takes place, if there is an issue in the community where law enforcement has to be engaged, that relationship, that trust is there. Mm -hmm. Where I can have coffee with the chief of police and say, hey, how do we work together? And I think that's how we can be uh, advocates moving forward. But like you said, we have to get over our own phobias, our own biases. And sometimes it's hard to do that when we have been on the other end of that injustice. Yeah, I think I like to tell, talk about it. Luis and I talk about it in Spanish, but in English, it's a <laughs> kind of like a term like, yeah, we're kind of just marinating in white supremacy. Yeah. We're marinating in it. Mm -hmm. So we're swimming through it. Sometimes it's thicker. Sure. Sometimes it's thinner, but mm -hmm. we're moving through it. And you're describing a system of horror mm -hmm. yeah. where someone would lie to put another human away but yeah. obviously that person that would lie didn't believe that you were actually human sure absolutely yeah absolutely yeah commodities you know you, you know in our church we're looking at freedom february and people are being treated like commodities you know and so at the end of the day it's it's an evil and it's an evil that has to be to, to be addressed and i think you know from my own experience i've tried fighting fire with fire i've tried an eye for an eye i've tried revenge those things haven't given me any momentum until we decide <laughs> to work together. And working together, I want to be clear about working together uh, to promote hope and racial unity doesn't mean that I don't call out things that are unjust or that I am uh, quiet. I would, I would say that working together means that our voices are elevated in a way that says this is wrong and here is a solution. And so how do we walk hand in hand to do that? And those that have a problem with that, I think then weren't a part of the solution anyway. Yeah, ultimately, you know, you've kind of circled around and said it a number of different ways, but like, we can't do this on our own as 
individually, like as as a, as a group of people, like you would, it was a call for unity. The common goal must be unity that we use influence to move beyond equality towards being one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that looks like individual work. It looks like group work and it, and it looks like intentionality with, um, you had talked about mourning with those who mourn, like we actually need the other person to reflect Absolutely. our experience yes, and ma'am. say, Hey, I see you. Mm-hmm. And I hear you mm-hmm. and vice versa. Absolutely. Because it can't be done no. with just one. It can't be <laughs> done with just Martin Luther King on his own. That I have a dream speech to, to nobody out there mm-hmm. would have not made news. It would have not, not made news at all. And it had to be. And, it, and for him, you know, one piece of it, what I think is, is paramount is education. You know, as we as we educate ourselves, our eyes begin to get open. You know, if I and I just think about my Seattle University journey and what I was exposed to being around other ways of being Christian and other lifestyles and from every economic background, it really opened my eyes to say, okay, the world's bigger than my bubble. Mm. Um, you know, and even in, in the church, you know, I can feel like I'm in this bubble, but to have that bubble burst and to have a lot of my, again, back to that word phobias uh, challenged, I think we can, uh, it gave me some momentum to move forward and claim the voice that I think, um, our communities need to hear like there is another way. Yeah. yeah. I've been playing a lot with that. I was actually, my friend asked me to write, she has a publication in the South okay. and she's like, it, she was on our podcast earlier. Her name is to me, Spencer subculture, Inc. African-American. Okay. And she's like, write for my crowd. I'm like, I, I don't know if I can write for your crowd, <laughs> <laughs> but I started thinking like, how are we connected? It helped me to think like, how are we connected? It helps, it helps me to think like, how are you and I connected? How are histories connected? Like yeah. it can look like on the outside, we take a picture together. We're like, clearly we're not connected. Yeah. But when I started doing research, I started thinking about how, cause I'm Mexican. I started thinking about how are Mexicans created well, it's a race that was created because colonizers and indigenous peoples mixed and they mixed because that the colonizers felt that that would be an advantage for them. Mm-hmm. So they created this new race basically. And then it wasn't enough labor. So they had sure. to bring over African-Americans. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so they had that playing in. And so I just have all these concepts flying around that the blood that was spilled of indigenous peoples of African-Americans and of Mexicans towards this fight is actually what calls forth the justice and the virtue of, of the declaration of independence. Absolutely. That we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I started thinking about like, this is what makes the dream true. Absolutely. This is what makes the declaration of independence true. It's the blood that, that our ancestors have shed together that have died together. It's, it's this concept that it's, we are connected. Mm -hmm. And, and how does that, how does that influence me today? Yeah. I don't know. It was powerful connection for me. Oh, very powerful. And, you know, being in Senegal, looking at the, you know, they're colonized by France. France kind of was the, I'd say the launching point for their freedom, but I was blown away. I had just learned that they didn't get their independence till the 1960. Mm-hmm. So just up until 1960, uh, Senegal was still colonized, Dakar colonized by France and it's profound, and here's the only child coming out in me. Their Independence Day is April 4th, uh, 1960, so that's like their 4th of July. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, and my birthday is April 4th. Whoa. So every year, April 4th, Senegal chills. is throwing a big party <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of my birthday. Fireworks are going <laughs> off. So. But yeah, I thought that was just interesting how, that, um, how that those dots were connected. Yeah. 
Well, and, and back to this idea of connection that you were talking about, Danielle, um, that story you told about in Senegal, your friend wrapping their arm around you and say, we're brothers, yeah. African and African-American. Mm-hmm. Like I was like getting choked up because sure. that's the kind of connection and connected. I see you, you see me. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying that it calls forth to make this dream true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, to even take that a step further for me, how can I put my arm around people that don't look like me, mm-hmm. don't come from where I'm come from and say, we're brothers, we're sisters. I think that's where the true power is. You know? That's awesome. There's a lot of power in that. I think it's like, so I think we boil it down. I think a lot of us, people have asked me or Maggie, like, well, what do you do? And we're like, well, read your own books, <laughs> get educated. What do you For think? Sure. What do you think we're doing? We're yeah, reading, yeah, like we're yeah. listening to stuff. Like, um, so what are some of the things you encourage people to do like sure. year round? Like, yeah, cause yeah, yeah. black history month is American history. It's absolutely. a year round study sure, of what absolutely. we are. So what are some of the things you do year round? Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciate about this opportunity is listen to podcasts. I mean, podcasts have a wealth of conversation mm-hmm. that allow you to just be informed. It can challenge you can provide new insight. And so I think that's one. And I think also too, um, get to know the other mm-hmm. yeah, up close and personal, spend time with people that don't look like you spend time with people that don't believe what you believe, uh, spend time with people that may have a stance that will never budge. What is it that you can learn from them? One of the things I appreciate about not only racial reconciliation, but interfaith work you know, working with people that are clearly another faith background, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to convert them. They're not going to convert me. But what we can agree upon is human dignity and what's the best course of action for humanity. So having those kinds of relationships can really stretch you to grow. Then I think having courageous conversations. Um, I know race is a, can be a hot topic along with politics and other things, but doing the hard work to say, hey, you know, when there's something that arises, um, I'm okay with having a face-to-face conversation with somebody about how we can move in that fashion. And one of the things that I'm reading right now, I'm reading the New Testament um, kind of for the year. I tried to read the whole Bible last year, and I think I fell off around Samuel somewhere. So so I'm going to take some of that weight off. And so I'm just reading Matthew now, and it's been a lot more easier to navigate. But just really looking at the teachings of Jesus and how he operated and how he did not push away those on the outskirts or marginalized, but he actually had a face-to-face conversation, he had a relationship, and then he was very clear about the culture and how to flip that upside down. So I would just invite you to look at the way of Jesus. He has a lot to say, and he modeled, I think, what it would be like us to be unified and push back against those who on the outside appear that their hearts are pure but on the inside there's actually even in corruption he didn't shy away from that so I think we can learn from his example yeah I mean it's 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 back to that feeling being willing to reflect someone else's face someone else's story one of the things I love most about Jesus's interactions with with all the people um, is that he I mean he listened and he reflected back to them their experience that they were going through and 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 that's it it's a simple thing but it's not easy yeah right and so just challenging yourself and and like daniel said being curious about what's happening in you when something comes up um it's it's a part of the process to engage others and listen and reflect back their experience so that you can do your own work also absolutely really good and i always get the question you know ken you mentioned all nations and 
mentioned multicultural ministry and what does that look like if you're in an area where you may not have that opportunity mm-hmm, as God? Mm-hmm. I said, well, hey, it's really not about having, you know, an African-American or an Asian or what Pacific Islander on stage representatives. It's, it's about having a group of people that get it and that understand how do we work together, that understand that this is bigger than our bubble and there's hard work that it takes. So if the, because if, if you go to Harlem, if you go to Watts, California, it's going to be hard to say, hey, you need to integrate. You know, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's going to represent the community that it's in. Yeah. However, using California as an example, can you take the African-American church, the Hispanic Catholic church, or the Korean whatever church, bring those leaders together yeah. and create unity? I was uh, reading an article where it's like the churches were trying to work together because the young people in those churches were killing each other. Mm-hmm. Cal- Southern California, African-American and Hispanic tension is a real mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And so those churches were trying to work together. And if the leaders can model unity, then they were seeing some traction amongst the parishioners That's and those good. families. So it's not really about having uh, every race or nationality represented, which I think that's awesome. Yeah. But the demographics, demographics may not support that. And so you have to go with, you know, go with the demographics and, you know, have messaging that can really challenge the people to say, hey, you know what? I get that. And I'm mm. on board. I do think like pushing back just a tiny bit uh-huh, on you and you yeah. can feel free to tell me if oh, I'm wrong. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I do think that if you don't have representation, it's must much less likely for those people to feel safe sure. and come into that yeah, environment. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you feel about that? Well, the key is you have to, when that, that representation has to be in leadership. Uh, that, that's one, one thing that's helped me in Bremerton is that I'm in a position of leadership. And so if you can, if, if you have to have representation, you know, it has to be in leadership so that leadership can have a voice. I think representation with no voice. So you're dead on representation with no voice. It's it's it, it doesn't have any power or momentum. But I just think, again, it's like uh, you take Bainbridge Island, for example, yeah. and you say, hey, Bainbridge Island, this campus needs to be 30 percent African-American or other. That may not happen. Or like I said, back in predominantly African-American uh, communities where the black church is predominant. And you say, hey, we need to integrate other into here. It'll be very difficult to do that. So it's empowering those leaders to then build relationships with other communities that then can provide unity for the people that are in that community as well. Yeah, yeah I think um, like that. And then, I mean, like just the topic, like the political season is heating up. Yeah. And I mean, it's charged, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So what are some ways you're going to engage that? Oh, it's, uh, again, being crystal clear on what I believe and what I vote for and not feeling challenged when I have to, when I have to uh, voice that. Uh, yeah, political season is, is very different. I'm a veteran, and so one of the things as a veteran who served my country, regardless who's in office, that's who I've swore to uphold and and defend my country for. So I have that piece of it. So whoever's in office, you know, regardless, right, wrong, or indifferent, I, if I disagree at the end of the day, I have to abide by whatever, um, you know, laws or fill in the blank of what that can look like. And I'm also open to hearing other people's opinion. You know, if a person is pro our president or not our president, I hope whatever conversation that we would have would not affect our relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so being able to have these political charged, politically charged conversations and not allow it to affect us personally, I think, um, I think is healthy. And asking the question, great, you have that view of that person. I have this view of that person. How can we somehow, some way provide that third way that says we won't pick a side, A or B? 
you know, red or blue, but uh, hold hands together. Yeah, we as a, a culture probably aren't very good at having conversations where the end of the conversation is just that we disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I don't know what that is. Like, do we just lo- lose the art of discussion? Are we um, impatient or indifferent or unwilling to hear the other person's side? But I think people have a really hard time engaging in political conversations or race conversations um, when the end result will just be that we've just, that we've disagreed, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, for me, I, I find, um, my in-laws and my, my parents are on the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not yeah, throwing yeah. anybody under the bus here. I'm just saying they're on <laughs> other sides. Um, and so like, I don't want to engage those conversations at either house, mm-hmm. you know, b- because, um, you know, and also like, like you had said, like honoring that someone's position might not change, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Uh-huh. But just being willing to engage the conversation. There's like that tension there mm-hmm. about agree to disagree. Absolutely. Yeah. And being okay with what comes out of that, you know, and what's one of the things that I have to fight against is that if you have a different, pol- especially political view than I do, that you're not attacking my values. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think sometimes we say, That's oh, you're, you're attacking what I believe or my values. And it's just no. This person may just um, have this view that's on the surface, a political view. It really has nothing to do. And if you start to do the hard work and have those conversations, and what I'm, this is just me and I can be wrong, but oftentimes when you get through a heated race or whatever, at some point you'll say, okay, we're actually saying the same thing. Mm. Just different expression and different experiences and different context. But if we get stuck in all of that, we can't get to the true core of the matter. I do think that's true. We were think, I was thinking about that with the Super Bowl and how fiery it was. Yeah. And the conversations were just so polar opposite. And I was like, why can't we just like come to the table and not say the inflammatory thing on either side? Mm-hmm. Because if you like if you're just being practical and you wanted to convince someone, if you start out blasting them, yeah. you're not gonna get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really not strategic. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's just like a rant. <laughs> So my, my frustration with it was like, why can't it be somewhere in the middle? Sure. Like, mm. why isn't there some space to say, well, that maybe this, maybe that, uh, maybe this, maybe yeah. that. And I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from sure. you, right? Yeah, Just absolutely. like, how do we come to the table, mm-hmm. but not start off blasting? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And that's the third thing. You know, one would be mourn with those who mourn, be a passionate peacemaker, and then be willing to listen. Yeah, Just be willing to hear and just listen and uh, perhaps not even say anything. And just, you know, what is it that I'm kind of learning? And I think for those people that are different than me, where's their giftedness? You may, you said something very powerful, Danielle, about the image of God. And so in whatever capacity the discussion might be leading, if I can keep in my mind this person represents the image of God, their behavior, their words, how they're treating me may not reflect it. How can I lead in that capacity? And it doesn't mean that I don't call truth to power or promote justice, but it means that I'm secure in who I am. And I don't have to operate out of shame or guilt or anything like that. Cause I, you know, one of the things in my incarceration, you know, I, I really struggled with, you know, as an African American in this time, why do I have to go through this? Why mm. are my, why do my friends and I have to suffer in this capacity? And so flipping that to say, Hey, as an African American young man, I can build influence. I can lead, I can rally a, a group of people that says, Hey, this is wrong and we're going to move forward. And so that's kind of been the journey I've been on a couple of decades after that, just trying to rally um, people that may feel you know, like they're underprivileged to claim the power that they do have. And I think the church is a great vehicle because we don't have to do it on our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I think that's really powerful. It, it speaks, you talk about the two decades of work you've put in to be able to speak like this. <laughs> and I mean, really, sure. it yeah. gives yeah. you credibility. Sure. Yeah. You've been educated. Mm-hmm. You're, you've been in so many conversations. Like yeah. this is not just something you just walked in, sat down, and your 16-year-old self said. Sure, for you know, sure. <laughs> it's like none of our 16 year old yeah, selves can no, say stuff. No. But that's one thing I told a friend like, oh, I made a rookie mistake. I was trying to talk about something about race and I jumped too far ahead. And then I took a step back and I realized, oh, wait, I made, I made this mistake. Like I didn't like sit down. The relationship is a long journey. Yeah, absolutely. It is a long journey to get yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to jump to the end. Sure. But that the result is not in the end. The result is in the process. It's the journey. Yeah, it's the journey. So I really like what you said. It's this pathway to learning. It's this mm-hmm. pathway of my mind being able to shift because none of us changes overnight. No, not at all. Not at all. And being a father, so interesting. This new gener- this generation, my daughter's age, it's just their level of, of intelligence. I don't know if it's social media or mm. what it is, but you know, racism for my children, they're like, that's the dumbest thing in the world. They can't even fathom why a person wouldn't like another person because of their skin color, you know? And so I, I do think that there is a generation coming saying, are you kidding me? You know, this is so ignorant to think of like, to think mm. that. So I'm, I, I'm hopeful that the ignorance is dissipating behind this evil as we have a generation that says, you guys are tripping for lack of a better expression. <laughs> yeah. Like they don't get it. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. That, 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 I found that to be true yeah. for my kids too. Um, we've been reading um, some, some black history books and, mm-hmm. and my daughter said, why would anybody do that? I don't yeah. like that. She didn't, she didn't get it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was like, I know, yeah, but like, absolutely. this is the environment that this happened in. And we were reading about Jackie Robinson and, and, and it was just, it was kind of beautiful mm-hmm. that that was the, her mindset. Like, I don't even understand how this could happen, sure. you know, yeah. but then educating her and saying, well, this did happen uh-huh. and we get to work on building reconciliation. We get to work absolutely. on making sure it doesn't continue. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like it's like a kid. They haven't marinated so long. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. DNA has been in it, sure, but they haven't been enculturated to that extent. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, kind of that's kind of like the brilliance of being a baby. Yeah, yeah. there's innocence there, and you know, being back to the multicultural work in the church. My daughters can invite their friends that don't look like them. You know, it's just it's always smile, you know, in certain churches, especially when I had friends that didn't look like me and I was in a predominantly African-American church and they would say, well, I, will I be the only cotton ball in a bowl of raisins? Are these little <laughs> t- <laughs> and I'm just like, is that a, was that a, what kind of comment is that? Yeah, you know? <laughs> and uh, certainly we had, you know, uh, and so just to have those walls tore down, I mm. think uh, is, is a step in the right direction. And so can we just have the church, Martin Luther King, in his book, Testament of Hope says, it's sad that Sunday at 11 o'clock is the most segregated day in America. Mm. And so um, I'm wondering, is that still true? Mm. You know, perhaps, or maybe is, is, is a lot of more, is there a lot of more intentionality going into having those environments that represent the community? And not just if I'm in an area, I have to seek out a church with people that look like me, but just seek out a church that um, is promoting what Jesus really said, his prayer is that they would be one mm. just as you and I are one talking to the father. Yeah. yeah. Ken. So like, how do we find you? Like oh, people oh, are out there. They're like, <laughs> yeah. pastor Ken, pastor Ken, yes. where are you? It's yeah, like, well, so sure. what is it? Can people meet with you? Can they email you? Yeah, Can they sure. talk to you? I like, think the, the, the easiest way to do it is just to email me. That's Ken K E N dot Riley at new life dot TV. And, uh, I'll be happy to meet, have coffee. And, um, I'm in, 
these kinds of conversations at least once or twice a month uh, as people just have questions, they have wrestlings. Um, if you, even if somebody's, I've, I've met with somebody that just had this profound phobia and had to kind of work through that. I can just, uh, one thing I can always guarantee is a non-judgmental ear. Mm. So I can certainly hear that. And then my, my, another thing I can guarantee is that my position won't change. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm always going to be uh, asking, you know, how do we work together to promote unity? Yeah, and you guys have you have church services and you have community dinners. Yeah, Tell about absolutely. the times and places. Yeah, we're at Mountain View Middle School, nine. Excuse me, ten thirty. We have a community dinner at five thirty, and the uh, gathering starts at six. <clears throat> excuse me. So, certainly, yeah, that's uh, always an open invitation to come if you want to. If you're asking yourself, okay, what does a, this this multicultural environment look like? Mm. We've been so pleased, and that's kind of what keeps me up at night and, and wakes me up in the morning that uh, we're starting to see. Uh, specifically in Bremerton, that that uh, campus is representing its community. And mm-hmm. so I just I had a, a lady come. We had a, uh, a guest this past week share some stuff about some school stuff happening in the community. And she said, wow, this church is very diverse. And I'm like, yeah, we try to be intentional with that in ways that are healthy and promote unity. So, yeah, you're more than welcome to come. I would love to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. That would be awesome. Well, Ken, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure, thank you for having and me. This has been a, a, a lot of fun. So yeah, it's good. Yeah really rich conversation. So yeah, we appreciate absolutely. that. Um, sure. We always end our podcast by asking our guests three questions. Okay. What are you reading right now? Okay. What are you listening to? And who or what is inspiring you? Wow. So reading two books, Above the Line by Coach Urban Meyer. And, uh, he really talks about systems and how okay leaders have um, a quote, but great leaders have a system. And mm. so like, I've been listening to what are the systems and how do we engage? And if you talk about race relations, again, how do we systems we have to look at also a book by Brene Brown called dare to lead all right she talks about vulnerability hey we got that in spades <laughs> <laughs> something that is a practice behavior for me but yeah. I think once we can get vulnerable we can work together and I'm kind of uh what am I listening to We're listening to a lot of different podcasts I'm listening to the arise podcast oh, yeah. that's, that's Greg Rochelle leadership podcast is another one that I, I listen to and then certainly in this season, really being inspired by uh, Dr. King, one of my heroes, uh, just really being reminded of his dream that every, you know, black boy would have a, would hold hands with a white boy, black girl, white girl. As I look at some of my pictures on Facebook and some of my daughter's friends, um, he would look at those pictures and say, you actually have come along. Mm. Yeah, so, well, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back. Oh, absolutely. I'm in. I love this. This is good (laughs) stuff. So thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.